Well, good morning once again. It's good to have you all here this morning. And I think we'll just call off service and just hang out. All right. It's a good idea, right? Well, praise the Lord. You know, we'll be able to do this in heaven, but right now it's time to get down to business. So once you all find a seat, we'll go ahead and start. Actually, once you find a seat, why don't you go ahead and stand? Okay, now sit down. No, just tell you what, uh, join me in opening your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 as we read the Word of God together. Gospel of John, verses uh, 1 through 18, chapter 1. All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. What majestic words. What incredible truths. What a wonderful miracle of your existence coming into our time and space, walking among us, Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's in you that we find grace and we find peace and we find rest. We find hope. We find salvation. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in bringing us to yourself. And we just pray that this morning, as we spend time together considering what your word has for us, that, Father, our hearts would be lit ablaze, that they would burn within us, even as Jesus himself, in teaching those disciples in the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned as they listened to the words that he shared. We pray that, Father, you would speak to us today through your word as well. We love you and praise you and thank you that we can ask with anticipation in this, knowing that you desire to help us to draw closer to you, to know you better, to fall more deeply in love with you. And so bless our time here today as we spend it toward that end. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, I'm going to invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in verse 11 for a couple of weeks now. We'll be there again today. 
This week's not going to be a rant, though. And I have to tell you, I feel pretty happy about that. But um, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 11, once again reads, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And I'll go on and read for the explanation as to why he gave these gifts. In verse 12, it says, For the equipping of the saints for the works of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, we see this wonderful reason why God or Jesus Christ personally, the Son of God, the eternal word become flesh, and the bridegroom has blessed his bride with these particular gifts. Again, the idea of prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Um, we have been talking about these giftings that he has given his bride, uh, both what they are and also, again, why. We just read why, but in simple terms, uh, taking the wedding analogy of the bridegroom and the bride, one of the reasons why Jesus has given these gifts to the church is that he might beautify, purify, and even protect his bride like any good husband would. And so this is something that if we take again from Ephesians chapter 5, where he speaks about husbands and wives, draws this wonderful picture of how, uh, of how marriage in, in life is actually a model, an example of the relationship that Christ has with his own uh, bride, the church. And so again, with that in mind, these gifts are given toward the end that he might wash her with the water of the word, that he might purify her, and I would suggest again also protect her, the idea of not being pulled away with every wind of doctrine and these kinds of things. There's a lot there. But the roles that we've been speaking about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, are given to the church that she might be healthy and strong and beautiful and pure. We talked about apostles and prophets and their role in the early part of the church's development and establishment. Uh, we spoke about how there are no apostles today on the same level that we would have seen with the apostles then, uh, that authority lied with them to establish the body of Christ. And now we could use that term in very, very general terms, in terms of someone being sent on a commission or with a mission. We could use the word apostle in those very general kinds of terms. But nobody today on the scene has the kind of apostolic authority that the apostles had in the first century. That office is no longer with us. The idea of prophets, we spoke about that. And again, I'm summarizing here very briefly but the idea of a prophet in that first century sense was somebody who was given the word of God, somebody who not only foretold future events, as was the case oftentimes with a prophet, but there was also the element of forthtelling, giving the revelation of God as he has now given it to mankind, in particular to the church, much like he did with Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there were also those uh, who were given that gift of prophecy to receive the word of God in an era where the word of God had not yet been fully uh, inscripturated or given yet to where we have it like we do now. Um, and that, of course, is a very brief summary of that idea. And again, in that sense, we are not getting any new revelation in regard to Scripture today. There are groups that would claim that we are. We're not. 
uh, and groups, whether it's the Mormons or, as we mentioned over the last couple of weeks, groups like the New Apostolic Reformation, believing that there are still authoritative words from God given to apostles and prophets by which the church needs to submit. That's not true. That's false, and you should run away with, from that at full speed. Um, but the idea is that there is no one like that today. However, we also mentioned that we do believe the gift of prophecy does exist today. Uh, God can, in fact, give a word to somebody about an event that may be coming, much like he did with Agabus in the book of Acts, where he foretold a famine that was coming, or uh, or when Paul was told about how he was going to be persecuted when he ultimately got over to Jerusalem in that. And so we could see something like that happen today. But, of course, Paul, who uh, uh, wrote about this uh, with some great specificity in regard to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, said that if someone claims to have a prophecy from God, they immediately fall under the scrutiny of the saints. Let two or three speak, let the others judge. That's not being judgy, that's being biblically appropriate and astute. If someone said, hey, the Lord has told me something, well, the way to know whether he did or not is whether it happened. You know, and of course, if we consider what the scriptures, uh, the kind of weight the scriptures put on uh, um, prophets and that those who would claim to have that gift in the Old Testament, uh, there was both a warning about those who would give prophecies that don't come to pass. Don't listen to them. And as a matter of fact, stone them. Uh, we're, we don't do that nowadays. But, you know, um, and then there was also mention if someone gives a prophecy and it does come to pass, but they lead you after other gods. Did you catch that? If they give a prophecy and it does come to pass, but they lead you to other gods. So false prophets can, in fact, give a word that may come to pass. But the litmus test then also carries with it the idea that they are not leading you astray after other gods and that kind of thing. God takes his word very seriously. And if God is going to give a prophecy to someone, of course, not on the level of Scripture anymore, but if God gave a word to somebody or somebody says, God told me, now, I, I poked fun last week, and it was a lot of fun. I'll poke fun again. All those who said, God told me Trump's going to be president again. Now, I don't mean to step on your toes and you know, all that kind of thing. But again, like we said last week, it doesn't matter how many voting machines had issues. If God told you Trump was going to be president, it didn't matter about the voting machines. He was going to be president. He's not president. Oh, wait. Yes, he is. No, he's not. <laughs> He's not acting as president of the United States. That was a false prophecy. If you'd said God told you that, you were wrong. That is a, by definition, a false prophecy. Now, the reason I say that is not so that everybody who heard somebody say that starts looking for a rock to throw at this person. But we want to be careful when we say those things. You know, and and I do understand, by the way, and we're going to get into the evangelism thing here in a minute. I said I wouldn't rant, but here I go. So when we say God told me, a lot of times we sort of just mean by that, you know, I was praying about something. I feel like maybe this is something from the Lord or something like that. That's when you say God told me something. God told me. You need to understand the weight of what you're saying. Nobody would have said that in the Old Testament unless God actually told them something. So who the heck are we to say that? I'm praying about something. I feel a peace about something. This seems like something the Lord may have for me. Uh, I, you know, um, the Lord gave me a word for you. Take it for what it's worth. You know, that's, that's fine. But when you say God told me, that's different. 
Now you're claiming that God spoke to you. And that's what that means. There's no escaping that. Recognize what you're saying when you say that and don't say it. I mean, find something else to say. But don't say that because that's confusing to people. Okay? I mean, again, the idea of prophecy or a prophet or somebody, because let's face it, if God, if, if God told you something, that carries a lot of weight. If he didn't tell you that, but you're still saying it, you're manipulating somebody. Don't say that. Say something else. That's how seriously we want to take these things. This is what the Bible teaches us. So we don't get casual about that stuff. We don't just flippantly use terminology as if it didn't mean anything or carry any weight. It does. We want to be careful about that. Um, so, apostles, prophets, evangelists. He gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets. He gave some to be evangelists. I'm going to start first with the idea of the evangel, the good news, the Christian gospel. The gospel itself is at the root of all of these things. These are these these offices and positions and, and giftings all serve the gospel. But the evangelist in particular is one that is often associated with the ideal idea of propagating the gospel, sharing the good news. Today we would use terms like sharing our faith with somebody, the idea of evangelism. Well, what is the evangel? It's another way of saying the gospel. Uh, euangelion is the Greek word there. It's where we get our word evangelism, the evangel, evangelist, all come from this concept. Well, the evangel or the gospel is the good news. It is, and, and it is important that we understand the gospel clearly enough to share it with others when we have those opportunities. It's important to know what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. The gospel is, clearly put this, if I can just use two passages in particular to begin to springboard into a definition, when we think of when John records, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is an extremely beautiful, succinct expression of the gospel and what it accomplishes. Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians 15, I I remind you, I declare to you, I remind you once again the gospel, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died and was buried and rose again all according to the scripture. That is the gospel. Now, within those two statements, both Paul's and, of course, whether Christ said it or whether this was John's commentary on what Jesus said, the idea of those two ideas fundamentally give us a sense of what the gospel is. Matter of fact, turn to John 3.16 for just a moment. Of course, we just said it, and most of you could recite it by heart. But let me break it down quickly. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now notice what is there and what is not there. First off, what is there? This was God's doing. God proactively loved a world, that John doesn't say it right here, but we understand from the New Testament that clearly God loved a world that was in rebellion to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul would say. 
So God so loved the world, not the world so loved God. The world does love its version of God, its self sort of image of God and that kind of thing. But it was God who first proactively loved the world. And he demonstrated that love by giving his only begotten son, giving, not just sending, but giving. Christ himself, the son of God into the world is a gift to mankind from a loving God. That whoever believes, believes, not does, not accomplishes, not performs, not lives up to, believes. In Romans 4, 5, Paul would say, he who believes but does not have works will still be justified. The idea that it is not our works that contribute to our salvation at all. That's a tough one for some of us, right? My works have nothing to do with my salvation. Your works have nothing to do with your salvation on the being saved side. They are a response to being saved. A person whose life has been transformed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit does live a different life. But we don't put the cart before the horse. Our works have nothing to do with our being saved. He who believes should not perish, and what that means is be separated from God from all eternity in the place created for the devil and his angels, a place called hell, the lake of fire, should not end up there, but have eternal life, aeonius zoe, not just a long time, but a completely different quality of life that is in fact ongoing, but is a different kind of life entirely, which not only speaks of eternity itself, but even the quality of life that we experience in terms of our relationship with God, even here right now, as we make our way to eternity. Everybody is an eternal person in the sense that they will live forever. doesn't mean they came from forever. We all had a starting point, but we will live forever. There is, however, a difference in where some will live and some others will live. And it is based on the belief in the gospel. But we therefore live a different life, not just in terms of our behavior, but we know God on a different level. We are now filled with the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. As Jesus said in John 14, the Holy Spirit is not only with us, but is in us. The Father and the Son have made their home with us. We didn't have that before we knew God. So we have a different quality of life now than we had before. We have a new nature that is part and parcel with what it means to be born again. So John 3.16, and of course in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the mechanism through which God accomplished this. Christ came into the world, was uh, crucified, buried, and rose again the third day. These tell us the essential fundamentals of the gospel. If Jesus had not died for our sins and had not risen from the dead, being buried, of course, connects those two things. If he had not been uh, killed, uh, died on the cross for our sins and risen from the grave, there would be no good news. There would be no good news. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on a number of topics relating to the resurrection, among which he says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And we're talking about how we're, we're born again, we have a new life and all this stuff. If this is not true, then we're the most pitiable because we're being persecuted for something that's not even true. And not only that, but we're still in our sins. The gospel is the single most important word 
most important message, most important truth that anyone could ever hear, embrace, and respond to. This is the central thing. This is the, the moment that you came to know Jesus was the minute that you went from BC to AD in your life personally. Everything changed at that moment. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new eternal destiny. You have a new nature. Yes, you still have the old one, sad to say. But now there's something within you, better, someone within you, who is helping you do battle with that, where you didn't have that before. The gospel is not just sort of a message that we hear and sort of something we tuck away. Oh, that's that sounds really great. Yeah, okay. No, it's something that changes everything. And it changes everyone that it touches. So what the gospel is and what it is not are very, very important things to consider. And when we understand the gospel, the clarity of it is paramount. Let me go a little further on this for just a moment. And this is not only true for any in here who maybe have never received the gospel, But it's also helpful for us when it comes to our sharing of the gospel and how we share it. For most people, the gospel is essentially something like a self-help program. We believe something about God. He helps us live a better life. We eventually are good enough to go to heaven. In a way, that is kind of what most of us in one form or another adhere to in terms of our religious sense of things prior to knowing Jesus. But I would suggest to you that while that may in some way sound close to the gospel, it's not in any way close to the gospel. The gospel is not a self-help program. I did mention a moment ago that receiving the gospel, having God living within you as a believer, is something that will flow over into the way you live your life. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying the value of living a good life in, in Christ's name, but we want to make sure we don't confuse that with what it means to become a believer. What you look like after you become a believer, that just makes sense. But you and I are not believers because we adhere to some self-help program that just made us better people. Jesus didn't come to make us better people. He came to make us new people. David says in Psalm 51, and I quote this often when we talk about the gospel because I think it's a fundamentally important idea for us to get our minds around when we understand the gospel ourselves and it affects how we share it. David said in Psalm 51, in sin, in iniquity I was brought forth, or in sin I was brought forth, in my mother's womb, and in, in sin I was brought forth in my mother's womb. The idea that I was literally born in a condition that was fallen. Now, in technical terms, in places like 1 Corinthians, and places like Romans, Paul talks about a concept, and I'm not going to get super technical, but he talks about something called headship. You and I were born into this world under the headship of Adam. Adam was created perfect, but yet he chose to rebel. And so therefore, all who came after him had an additional component in their makeup that Adam did not start with. You and I are now born in sin because our father, Adam, fell. And so therefore, no human being that has... Notice that didn't come like 15 generations later. 
you're on page two. Okay? The first one, Adam and Eve, right? The first two. If you've seen two, you've seen them all. And that's a literal truth. Because they fell, every one of us now has fallen. You could argue some genealogical bloodline if there was some generations that had gone by before the fall happened. But no generations went by before the fall happened. It happened at the beginning. And so therefore, every single person who was born after Adam and Eve, which is everybody, has this sin nature. It is innate to us from the point of conception. From the minute, the, literally, the, the nanosecond that you came into existence at conception. And yes, by the way, that is when you came into existence. From that, literally, from the minute you came into existence, you'd already lost. You had no capacity to do anything, good or bad, at that point. You just were. But you already were a sinner. That's what David means. I was born into this. In his, in his womb. In his mother's womb, I should say. Gotta clarify that nowadays. <laughs> in his mother's womb, conceived in sin. Never want to take for granted, even when you're in the friendly confines, right? But that's the point, and, and that's an important distinction to make. The idea that we are con- literally, from the point of conception, we are sinners. We didn't start to sin when we demonstrated selfishness as an infant. I want this. Me, me, me. All this kind of stuff that we naturally do. That, that activity of an infant is the natural outworking of what exists within that person, literally, from the moment they, they were. Now that changes things when we understand the gospel. For the gospel to be the good news, capital T, definite article, the good news, it can't just be a self-help program. And not only that, but going to heaven, since it is not based on our works, a self-help program would be useless in that regard. You see where this headship idea comes in. That's why Paul describes how at one point when we entered the world, when we were brought into existence, We were under the headship of Adam in sin. But now we are under the headship of Christ, a new man, a new creation. That's why Paul would say, behold, all things become new. 1 Corinthians 5.17. These are enormous truths that we have to understand. And you can hopefully at this point begin to see how how that affects the way we share the gospel. A lot of times when the gospel is shared... It is shared as sort of a come to Jesus and he'll fix all of your problems in life or something like that, something relatively shallow and surfacey like that. The reality is, is that coming to Jesus means a complete infinity point makeover without which at the very core of not just what you do, but of what you are without that. You, you're not a believer. You can't go to, you're, you're not born again. That's what born again means. Jesus would say again in John 3, the idea that you're born of the water or you're born in, you know, into life and existence. The water breaks, you're born, you come into the world. But you're also born again spiritually, born again by the Spirit of God. It's not just fixing you, it's a new birth. So when we talk to unbelievers and we share the gospel, this can't just be about, man, I know your life is rough and everything like that. And and just, you know, if you just come to Jesus, things will change. Man, not necessarily. 
Not necessarily. But you know what? You will change. You will change. You will have a relationship with God that you didn't have. And that will affect the way you see the trials and tribulations that you go through in life. Again, your eternity is altered now. Not because of what you've done, but because of what you now are. It's a fundamental difference in what you are. When we talk to unbelievers who are living like sinful lives and everything, they generally live under the impression that before they can come to God, they have to clean up first. They don't have the power to clean up. They might be able to take steps and maybe shine the outside a little bit, but the inside of the glass is still filthy, and they can do nothing about that. Someone has to pour something in there from outside. That's the power of the gospel. So the evangel, as hopefully I've at least gone some reasonable way into making the point that having the gospel right is important. And by the way, not only this, but one final point on that. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sin, past, present, and future. He will not go to the cross again to die for the sins you and I commit tomorrow. He already went to the cross. It is paid in full. We call that reconciliation. The idea of setting the ledger right. It's finished. That Greek word that Jesus cries out, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. Alternatively, paid in full. There is no longer a debt to be paid. And even if there were, you and I could never have paid it in the first place. It had to have been him. My wife very eloquently said yesterday at the women's tea that he had to be fully man and fully God in order to pay for our sins. And he was, and he did. So therefore, there was no debt left to pay. What that means is, is that when you come to Christ, when you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, that's not the point at which your sins were paid for. They were paid for at the cross. You're just now receiving that grace, that forgiveness. It's now been appropriated, but it was finished at the cross. So there's no cleaning up first. There's no getting to a point and now you're worthy to receive the gospel. You and I will never be worthy to receive the gospel. It will always be for him, you know, his work from his hand, by his doing. We simply believe. And then the work starts. The Holy Spirit begins to change us from the inside out. The water that's poured on the inside cleans us up and now begins to pour over to the outside. So you can see, when we share the gospel, it can't just be about come to Jesus because he'll change your life. Yes, he will. But what we really need to get across is that he will change you. You will be a new creation in Christ. You will be different now. That's what the gospel does. And the other stuff just comes as a result of that. And so the evangel, extremely important that we get that 
right, that we don't distort the gospel, that we don't present a different gospel, that we don't sort of present a gospel that has some element of what you do associated with it. Again, I want you to see this. I know I quoted it once already, but turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. It's so hard to just pick a passage in Romans. But for time's sake, I'll read verses 5 through 8. Now again, I just quoted this a moment ago, verse 5, but I'm going to go on just a couple of verses here as well. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he goes on and he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The idea of imputation, the idea that you and I have been given righteousness. It has not been earned. Uh, Again, we quote this all the time. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is the great imputational, um, uh, transactional work of Christ in taking that robe of unrighteousness, those filthy rags that, that were our righteousness, and taking them upon himself and instead giving us his robe of righteousness. He takes ours and goes to the cross and pays for it and wipes it out. The the handwriting of transgressions that was against us, nailed to the cross. It's done. It's over. It's finished. And now we've been given this robe of righteousness. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He ever lives to make intercession for us. From now on, when God looks at us and sees us, he no longer sees what we were. He sees what we are. And he sees us through Christ and the finished work. Okay? But notice David said, and Paul reiterates, that this is done by faith. We receive it by faith. And notice that that uh, both David and, and Paul builds on this idea that our faith is not a work. We didn't earn salvation because we believe. Look what I did. No. Your faith is not something you do. It's, it's distinct. It's distinguished from the idea of a work. We are simply trusting what Christ has done. So we don't do. And when we mix something we do with grace, then we have no longer grace. We have works. If our salvation, both the receiving of it, and I would argue are hanging on to it has something to do with us, then it is a works-based gospel that you're presenting or that you're believing. And that's not the gospel. You are his. And as Paul would say in Romans, uh, in Romans eight, like nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is true because he has paid all the debt. There is nothing left to be paid and you have put your trust in him, it has now been fully appropriated to you. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow for some, because we feel as though, well, okay, but what if I start 
If I fall back into sin in some area or something like that, I got to get saved all over again. No, you don't. I know there are theologies that espouse that idea that you can lose your salvation. I don't think you can, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, the Bible is ironclad on that truth. So when we share the gospel, we cannot begin to integrate into that something about what they do to either receive or to keep. Instead, we have to entrust them to the grace of God and we want to help them find a Bible church and disciple them and all the things that go with helping people grow in their faith. But at the end of the day, they belong to the Lord if they've in fact put their trust in Christ and he will work on them. But salvation is a complete, total gift of God, not of ourselves, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. Uh, Galatians 2, 21. Right? The idea that if righteousness comes by the law, then Jesus died for nothing. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. I promise you God was not, not listening at that point. It is all of him. So we also don't want to attach things to the gospel. Again, if, if, if there's something else that we're connecting with the gospel, that can also be dangerous. Coming in here this morning, I thought I wasn't going to pick on the NAR again, but I'm going to do one more time. Um, we mentioned last time that uh, people who are leaders in that movement um, believe that Jesus' death on the cross paid for all of your healings which is essentially to say that the reason why God didn't heal everybody in the Old Testament was because Christ hadn't come yet, but now that he's come and he's died on the cross and he's risen from the grave, therefore not only is your salvation paid for, but also all of your healing. That's ridiculous theologically, I mean, on the face of it. But but the idea that we're talking about this morning is that we are now associating that with the gospel. Well, what does that do to somebody who's not healed, but they believe the gospel? It does another kind of damage on top of all the other damage that teaching does. We don't, assu- we don't attach things to the gospel that are not the gospel. Healing, provision, all the other things that, that, that we might ask for. These are peripheral and they're legit. We ask, we pray, all these things, but they are not the gospel itself. And we want to be careful about that. Um, there is a signs and wonders movement that has been around forever, but there is a distraction from the gospel. It ceases to be about the gospel. It ceases to be about signs and wonders, or it starts to be more about signs and wonders at the cost of the gospels. It's not really about that. It's about this. The gospel is, it's a standalone truth that other things may connect to. But we don't dare associate something that's not central to the gospel as though it were. Because in doing so, we are distorting the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And we want to be able to share it. We want to understand it. And we want to, again, share it with those that that don't know the Lord, that they might come to know. But if we don't share the gospel as it is biblically given to us, then we're potentially misleading people. And that's an important thing. So that's the evangel. 
Paul here in verse 11 talks about evangelists. And it says he gave some to be evangelists. Now, in the same way that not everybody in the first century was a prophet or an apostle, not everybody is an evangelist in the way Paul is talking about it here. Does that mean that that doesn't mean we all have a responsibility to evangelize? Sure we do. We all have the blessed privilege and opportunity. However, in the context in which Paul is talking about here, an evangelist in the first century was not only somebody who shared the good news, but oftentimes was associated with planting a church. They would be what we would consider akin to what, what we generally define as missionaries. And so they would go somewhere with the evangel. They would be the evangelists that would go to an area. They would lead people to Christ, and they would establish a local fellowship. Now, that wasn't always the case. Uh, for example, Philip is called Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts. We don't have a record of him planting a church per se, but someone like Paul, who isn't necessarily called Paul the evangelist per se, but he was. He shared the gospel, he would establish a church, and he would even go further and oftentimes take on the role of pastor-teacher and and further uh, develop and cultivate the faith of those in that fellowship. Uh, as you as you would look at characters in the New Testament, you would find uh, that they oftentimes had at least one or more or even all of those gifts that we've been talking about in in chapter 4, verse 11 of Ephesians. But an an evangelist was generally one who brought the gospel to an area and began to establish a church and then eventually would hand off responsibility of that church once a leader was brought up from within or somebody came to become the pastor of that fellowship. An example of this might actually be something like Paul having established the church, brought the gospel in Ephesus, established it, and eventually handed it off to Timothy. We read that in 1 Timothy 1 where he says, Timothy, remain in the church in Ephesus. And then he goes ahead and gives him instruction on how to establish that church and how to function in the the church of God, which is the uh, uh, foundation and wellspring of truth. And so we, we see that there is this handing off of the baton at some point. So the idea of an evangelist at that point carried with it more than it generally does, at least in the West today. Uh, in some cultures, an evangelist would very much function in the same way, and they would go to an area, bring the gospel, and they would ultimately establish a fellowship and then move on somewhere else once a leadership was established. Generally here, like in the West, when we say an evangelist, what we mean is somebody who's maybe preaching on a street corner or something like that or or shares their faith and has a gifting for that kind of thing. Uh, that is also a legitimate idea behind evangelism. Uh, Paul would tell Timothy, do the work of an evangelist And this would be en route to fulfilling your ministry. When I read that as a pastor, I recognize that what I just did for the first half of this message is what Paul was telling Timothy to do. Share the gospel, evangelize, uh, make sure people know the gospel so they can then share it and that kind of thing. But I don't have a gift of evangelism per se. I've mentioned I've I've had friends in the past that I used to go out with and they would share and they would just open their mouth and people would be like wanting to get saved. Uh, I just I've never had that happen. I mean, I've led people to the Lord. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like I've I've sort of just, you know, just gone out and preached the gospel somewhere. People just are getting saved and all this kind of thing. I, I just don't have that gifting. My giftings lie elsewhere. But in terms of of your gifting, it may very well be that you have a gift of evangelism. That you find a drive to share the gospel with strangers. You just anywhere you are, you're looking for an opportunity to open your mouth and begin to share about the goodness of God. Everything you do is 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 at some point there's going to be a, 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 a an on ramp set in your conversation that's going to hopefully give that opportunity. Some people just have a wonderful gifting in that way. I would even say maybe even an anointing for that kind of thing. God just uses you in that way. I envy you deeply. I've always envied that gift. I thought, man, it would be so good to. 
just show up anywhere. You know, sometimes we'll try stuff. I'll go out for breakfast and and uh, at Cracker Barrel or something, and the waitress will come up. And as we're talking, we'll say, well, can we pray for you for something? And just hope maybe it opens the door. But, you know, I've never led anyone to Christ at Cracker Barrel. You know, <laughs> I wish I had. I'd love to. You know, but it's just, and, and again, it's it's not like God couldn't use any one of us in that circumstance. But there do seem to be some people that God just clearly has given that to. And like they just have an ability and they are leading people to Christ like you and I go to the water fountain. It's just happening all the time. And that's wonderful. So God gave some to be evangelists. And in that context, that spoke again of one who would go to a place, bring the gospel. People would get saved. They'd establish a fellowship. And then they would remain to cultivate the faith of those new believers. Or maybe they'd hand it off again to pastors, teachers, and that kind of thing. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the pastor and teacher idea next time, next Sunday. But that's this is the idea then of what an evangelist is. And so um, we're going to uh, – I'm going to actually – Stop there, but I will finish with one passage I'd like us to read. If you would turn back to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And by the way, there are lots of admonitions in the, in the scripture for all of us to take on this idea of making disciples, which, which really is the end goal. It's not just making converts, it's making disciples, leading someone to the Lord and helping them to then grow in their faith. Um, you know, Peter would say, those of us who love apologetics know this verse inside now. The idea of, of setting apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and being always ready to give an answer to those who ask you a reason for the hope that is within you and to do so with meekness and, and fear, or gentleness and respect, that idea. Uh, but that's not just for someone with a so-called calling to apologetics. That was just simply given to believers. That's something we all do. And so another passage like that, uh, I would I would uh, take here from Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, where Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and the name of the Lord, uh, uh, the same Lord overall, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they've not, of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings, of good things. And so the call here is again to any who will to go, to share, to open up your mouth and speak the truth of God so that people might come to know the God of truth and ultimately be saved. And so this is a great encouragement both to understand what the concept was like when Paul spoke about it, but to recognize that you may in fact be gifted in that sense in a very specific way, but on top of that, all of us are really called to share our faith. Uh, we're all really given the opportunity and the privilege to sort of shot our feet with the, the gospel, as it were, and to bring those glad tidings to those around us. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's great when people come here to church when they're seeking, but it's even more really biblical when we go out and seek to make disciples of the nations, even as Jesus gave the Great Commission. And so um, so there you go. I'm going to stop there today on evangelists. But before we go into communion, does anyone have any questions about anything we've talked about for the last few weeks? If you have some about pastors and teachers, that's next week. But any on the first three that we've talked about, uh, prophets, apostles, evangelists. 
It's all good if you don't, but if you do, feel free. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, and we're going to go ahead and partake of communion. Um, as the ushers pass communion out to you, you'll have the, the cup with the, the, the wafer on top and that. Um, we're going to go ahead and during the worship song, take a moment and invite everyone to partake of the, the bread, and then we'll also partake of the cup together as well. So if you would, um, Father, we just thank you and praise you for the word that you've given us in your word. We just thank you, Lord, for how you have called and gifted some in various offices uh, in the early part of the church's history. But nonetheless, today, you are still working in, in bringing people to faith. And so we thank you for those that you've anointed with that wonderful gifting to be able to share the gospel and for it to, to hit its mark so effectively uh, through that ministry. But we also thank you that you've invited all of us. Uh, we thank you that um, even as Jesus sort of told the, the disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers out. In the next verse, he sends them. So we just pray on the one hand that you would send workers out of the harvest. The fields truly are white in our day as well. And Father, maybe you would even send us. So we thank you, Lord, for that privilege of maybe being one of the uh, the sowers or the waterers that ultimately lead to the Holy Spirit bringing forth fruit. We praise you and bless you and thank you for what you're doing in our in our world today. And we just thank you for enlisting us in it. And Father, I would also pray that if there are any here this morning uh, or who are watching or listening who have never come to Christ themselves, they've never put their trust in what Jesus did once and for all, not just for the people sitting in church today and, and those who are already believers, but for them, for God so loved and they can put their own name in there that he gave his only begotten son. If you would believe You'd not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you've come to the place today where you realize your need for him, you realize your bankruptcy morally, you cannot earn your way, you can't work enough to offset the bad, there's never been a question of that. We enter the world in, in that losing position. If you come to realize that today, I promise you your only hope is found in Christ. And I invite you to come and receive him today. So if that's you, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I have violated your law, but even worse than that, I'm hopeless at the very core of who I am. But I thank you that I heard the gospel today, and I believe it. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin at the cross once and for all, past, present, and future. I put my trust in him now. And I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that my eternity is changed. And I thank you that you'll walk with me today and change me from the inside out. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And for sharing your grace with a sinner like me. Walk with me each day until I see you face to face. Help me to glorify you in my life. Help me to become more like Jesus. I thank you for him and that he was willing to pay my debt. I praise you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask the ushers to come up and grab the trays. And again, we'll partake in the midst of the song together.
snow, white as snow, though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know, Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven through the power of your blood, through the When Jesus met with his disciples in that upper room, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And as we take the bread this morning, we're reminded of that gathering, the sacredness of that moment when Jesus was taking a tradition that they had grown up with in the Passover and now was helping them to understand the picture that had been painted there all along that was pointing toward him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as we take this bread ourselves, as we participate, as we partake, we want to remember him with great thanksgiving for having taken our sin upon himself. So why don't we go ahead and take the bread? White as snow, white as snow, though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know. Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven through the power of your blood, through the wonder of your love, through faith in you I know that I can be white as snow. And when the supper was ended, he took the cup. And he gave thanks, he gave praise. And he shared the cup with his disciples and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And Lord, how we thank you that you allowed your body to be taken, allowed your blood to be shed, that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven, that you might wash us clean, through your own sacrifice and offering for us, the innocent for the guilty. And Father, as we partake of this cup, we just pray this would be just a new and fresh beginning to appreciating all that Jesus has accomplished for us. And so Jesus, it's in your name that we partake now of the cup.
Thank you again, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, why don't we go ahead and stand. Let's sing a closing song together. But before you walk out at the end, by the way, uh, we are going to celebrate our December birthdays, too. So we've got a few of those in here, I know. So let's close and worship, and then we'll go ahead and celebrate our birthdays. going to sing oh praise the name practice retelling the gospel story
I figured instead of waiting for all the confusion and saying, oh, are the kids coming? We go ahead and just grab them first. So, And I think we have three wall birthdays in December, don't we? So there they are. Who's all got a December birthday out there? Okay, there's a bunch, right? All right, we're going to do an all y'all. I think it's going to be the standard rule from now on, okay? All right, here we go. Well, this is for our December birthdays. We've got cake outside in the foyer. Thank you for Janet for picking that up. And I'll tell you what, let's sing. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear all y'all. Happy birthday to you. Awesome. Oh, um, and by the way, uh, I know we probably wasn't the actual month. We never really know for sure. But remember, Jesus' birthday celebrated this month, too. So... But um, by the way, we have these two lovely poinsettias from uh, from uh, the women's tea yesterday. If anyone's in desperate need of a thing on your table this holiday season, just grab one. Just take it with you, okay? So we don't know what else to do with them, so feel free to, to take those with you. But again, thanks for joining us this morning. We're glad you're with us. Hopefully you can stay and have some cake and, and such, and have a, uh, a very blessed, blessed week and, of course, Christmas season. Thanks for coming.